There we go. We are in the book of Hosea still. If you want to turn there with me, we are in chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 12 this morning. Hosea chapter 12. Um, and in this chapter, the, the Lord, as we talked about, the last several chapters of the book of Hosea are, are really somewhat astonishing in the sense that God is extending so much mercy and reconfirming his love towards this adulterous people. And in this chapter, the Lord makes a comparison with Jacob. And that illustrates the fruit um, to be reaped by repentance. That's really the point of all of this. Um, and we're going to highlight that as we look at Jacob just a little bit this morning. But Israel, uh, that northern kingdom, is mercifully reminded that God is, in fact, faithful. And that he's simply waiting for them to respond to him uh, and to his calls back to himself. Um, like Jacob, who finally did respond to the Lord in his uh, leading and prompting. So let's get into it this morning. Hosea chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and follows after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. We have, we have this description of Ephraim feeding on the wind, which is really an allusion to an empty, or it's a vain pursuit. You're not satisfied. We're going to have potluck today after church, and when we, in lieu of that, I suggest that maybe we go outside, and we stand with our mouths open, and we just see how nourished we are what we receive from the wind blowing into our mouth. And I'm going to just go out on a limb and suggest that we will probably be left hungry no matter how long we stand there. But this is Israel's pursuit. They're feeding on that which is not nourishing. In addition, he says that there is an east wind that they... Uh, follow after the east wind. Now, I don't want to make something too big out of something that doesn't need to be made too big, but when we encounter the east wind, most often in Scripture, it's something that's somewhat devastating. It isn't a harmonious kind of a summer breeze blowing through. It's something that's generally destructive. And if you think about the area that they're in, the east wind comes off the desert, and it's hot, and it's sandy, and it's miserable. But I want to look at a few examples. In Genesis chapter 41, for example, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment, we'll, we'll highlight this and, and begin to see what God is trying to explain to us here. For us, because we don't live in the promised land, we, we don't live in Israel, we don't experience the east wind as they've experienced it, so it's somewhat unfamiliar. But in Genesis chapter 41, we have this discussion um, and this about the life of Joseph, and there's this iteration um, of the the this reiteration of the dream of Pharaoh. And you remember that the, the dream that Joseph would interpret for Pharaoh was uh, interpreted to mean seven years of plenty and seven years of famine to be followed. And as you read through Genesis 41, we're not going to look at any verses in particular here. Uh, we're going to, in, in just a moment, look at some others. But we find that this east wind, the wind that blows through, that shrivels all the uh, the produce and, and destroys the crops is this east wind. That's the one that God sent to devastate his people. 
uh, excuse me, to devastate those crops. In Jeremiah chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me, Jeremiah 18. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 17. Now, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So God uses that descriptive metaphor of the east wind and its destructive power in that region as sort of this illustration of the way he's going to deal with them. We understand that the west wind is our prevailing wind. That's where the destructive forces come from. That's where we encounter it. But it's different here in their place. Psalm 48, verse 7 is another example. I'll let you write that in your notes. But ultimately, here's the thing. This is what's happening. This is what God is describing, is that Israel is feeding on that which provides no nourishment, does them no good. They're pursuing things that are destructive. And this is not new to us, as we've studied through the book of Hosea. We've seen that over and over and over, that that which they are reaping from what they are sowing in their idolatry is destruction. Now, there's this talk hear about this daily increase in lies and desolation. Uh, there's this vain pursuit. It's empty. And, the, and they keep doubling down, as it were, on all those things. God calls them to repentance. He sends even Hosea to, at the end of this era in their kingdom to call them to repentance one last time, as it were. And ultimately, they turn up rejecting that. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. But what they do do is make these alliances, and we've talked about this before, that as there's this reference to Assyria, they make covenant with the Assyrians. You can read about that in Second uh, Chronicles, verse 28. You can read about that in Second Kings, chapter 16. And not only that, but we find that there is these alliances in, in the back end of things, in the scheming of the kings of Israel, with Egypt. Here is Assyria coming in. They're about to persecute us, and so we go and we make these alliances. We take these uh, oils carried into Egypt, these oil offerings. That's what's being described here. This is an industry, as some uh, commentators would say, this is an offering. We're coming in to give you an offering. We're seeking to buy your help as mercenaries, so to speak. Come and make an alliance with us and deliver us from the Assyrians. All of this is vain pursuit. None of this is anything that they are able uh, to prevent. This is the hand of God falling on them. And, and I want to just make a parallel here this morning because in many respects, this description of feeding on the wind and pursuing those things that are destructive and ungratifying, unnourishing, isn't that far from the description of the church today. That there is a friendship with the world and a turning to its standards. And often we encounter not just, not just turning to those standards, but a completely different foundation. That we, we find uh, that the church begins to go out and lay a foundation apart from that which is laid in Jesus Christ. And ultimately leads people astray, potentially, in the name of Jesus we have to be discerning. It does not bring the desired effect. It does not bring the desired effect. 
for whatever the motivation may be, as sincere as it could be, it does not bring the desired effect. To pull punches in our description of people's sin and their desperate need for Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form, no matter where they're at, whether they're believers or not believers, when they need to be encountered by the Word of God, they need to be encountered by the Word of God. The truth is going to set them free, not our soft, fluffy, condoning words. We need to engage them with the truth. It doesn't nourish, and it leaves destruction and confusion in its wake. So here is Israel eating the wind, pursuing those things that that don't add up to anything, and in, in many respects, sometimes and oftentimes, the church engages in the same thing. We may do so personally and not realize it. I want to jump into, uh, if you will, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning because the text sort of lends itself to it, but jump with me down to verses 7 and 8. We have this further description of Israel becoming like the world. He says, he is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And Ephraim said, yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance, and in all my labors they shall, they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Now, that word merchant, if you take the time and you look it up and you pull out your old Strong's and you look at that, it's going to look very familiar. Because it's the same word translated Canaan. That's what it is. It's the word Canaan. These Israelites are here compared. They're, they're merchants. They're doing business. They're engaged in those things. But don't miss the point here that they have become just like the inhabitants of the land that were there before them. They've become just like the Canaanites. There is no distinction in many respects between Israel, God's people, and the world, the, the people that occupied the promised land before they got there. Israel has become as the world. And they're engaging in certain things that the world would find acceptable if we can get away with it. For example, he talks about having uh, deceit in his hand. He loves to oppress the balances of deceit. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 35 through 36, God specifically prohibits Israel from having deceitful balances, weights, right? We're, we're going to buy something and we're going to measure its volume or its mass. That's how we're going to decide how much it's worth. That's how we're going to distribute it. There's a standard that God establishes. And what they do, what they would do in those days is they'd run around with weights that are different. You know, it happens today in a different context. It's in the gym, right? You like to look strong, so you put the weights on. They say 45 on the side, but they only weigh like 20. Right? So I can lift a lot of those. Same thing is happening here. Right? I'm going to put a heavier weight on here or something, something that you are paying me more and receiving less. That's exactly what's happening. They're taking advantage. And they feel as if they're getting away with it. In Proverbs chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment, Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11, verse 1. Just to get God's perspective on the whole matter. He says, a false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 
So in no uncertain terms, God lets us know exactly how he feels about this. And ultimately, it isn't, it's the heart behind it that God is in fact condoning. The practice itself stems from something within. They don't view what they're doing as sin. They feel as if we're getting away with it. There's nothing that I'm doing that uh, perhaps everyone else isn't doing or however they may justify that. They, but they've come become just like the world. And not only that, they're saying that, that I have found blessing. I have found me out substance. I have become rich. And you probably can become rich by deceiving people. I just spent the last, it seems like quite forever, fixing one of our vehicles. And, the, and as I'm getting into this and I'm diving into it, there's, there's bolts that have been removed. I mean, I'm not the first person in here. And I'm convinced that the problem that I was fixing had existed beforehand and they could just band-aid it together just enough that it would work for a period of time. And I've done everything now. We, we fixed it right. It's as good as it can ever be. And it took a lot of time and effort. I'm a slow mechanic. Yeah, but I'm not the first person in there. Somebody did something. And I don't think that it was the guy that I bought the car from. I think it was the person before him. Somebody patched it back together, sold it at an auction. This guy bought it and sold it to me. Had no idea. It drove fine. We've driven it for as many years as we've driven it without any issues. Which when you lose the splines on a shaft and then you find no splines anywhere in the whole system, it kind of makes you suspicious. Where are the splines? <laughs> Israel's doing the same thing. They feel as if they're cutting a fat hog. We're doing all this. I've become rich. I found me out substance. I'm doing these things. And they're saying that this blessing, quote unquote blessing, what we are receiving as a result of the works and the things that we are engaging in, they're viewing that and they're ascribing it to blessing from these false gods, from these idols that they're worshiping. At the very least, that's where they're ascribing that. We've seen that earlier in the book of Hosea. At the very worst, they're probably ascribing it to themselves, which is, I think, probably more correct here. And they're unwilling to, to, to see the sin that they're in. Now, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20. Proverbs 30, verse 20. Let me turn there and read that one to you. While I turn there, why don't you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Proverbs 30, verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have no wickedness. Now, it could have been an adulterous man, could have been the same thing, but this is analogous to somebody that says, listen, here is the sin that I know that I have, yet I'm unwilling to acknowledge it. I'm going to just wipe it off and ignore it. It reminds us of what we read in the book of James, where we look into the Word of God and we see where we're at, and that becomes a revealer of our natural state, of our need for Jesus Christ. And we have a choice at that moment. We can deal with the sin or... We can choose to ignore it. And in this case, this adulterous woman, Israel, has chosen to ignore it and done so in such a way that I can put out a front, I can cover things up and try to deceive those people who are around me into thinking that what I'm doing is okay, that I'm all above board. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
verses 5 through 6, he says, Perverse disputings of men corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, here's the thing. God isn't condemning those who might be wealthy. In fact, if we read the rest of this chapter, he talks about that. He says, listen, you, I may bless you with material wealth. That might be something that God would choose to do. And he says, if I do, here's the responsibilities that you have. So it's not a condemnation of, of wealth in and of itself, but what it is a condemnation of is the, the, the perverse disputings, the, the men of corrupt minds, those who would say that gain is godliness. That just because somebody is successful and wildly rich and all those things, that somehow they have tapped into godliness or have some special in with the Lord, and therefore we should listen to what they say or that they have any credibility at all. How often do we read in either Ecclesiastes or the book of Proverbs or throughout the Old and the New Testament both? where there is this woe-is-me perception of the world because I see those who are in sin prospering while those who are God's people falling into hardships, being oppressed by those who are, in fact, prospering. Over and over, God addresses that. But what he concludes is that godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know why it's great gain? Because it is rooted in trust. I trust that God is, that he is sovereign, that he has placed me right where I need to be, that in fact, if there is anything happening in my life, good or bad, that it is received at his hand for the very best that he has for me. And it's not always going to be good things. Just because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that my cars won't break down or that I won't get flat tires. I mean, we drove past Mountain Home twice this week without any incident, which, you know, for our family, that tends to be the Bermuda Triangle of travel. If we can make it past Mountain Home in either direction, we're usually good to go. But we trust that whatever happens, happens in God's sovereign and His providential plan for us. And I'm content to be in His will and in His purpose, no matter where and what that looks like. Jump with me to verse 17. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. I want to, I want to notice a few things here. Number one, that God may in fact bless us, that, that part of what God blesses us with is for our enjoyment. You don't find that just here. You find that in the book of Ecclesiastes. You, we, we find it throughout Scripture. There's this idea that God is giving us things that are necessary for life, but he goes beyond that in his care and concern, and he gives us things that we might enjoy. Now, don't be frivolous, and don't, don't take that to mean that I can do whatever I choose to do. That's not licensed to engage in things that we ought not to engage in, uh, nor is it licensed to be a poor steward of the things that God has entrusted us with. All that said, though, if I want to take my family bowling, that's not a frivolous endeavor. That's enjoyment. We're going to have fun with that, and we're going to enjoy it. We may reap some of that enjoyment from what God has blessed us with. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But also notice them that he here gives this charge. There's a responsibility to those who are rich in this world. In other words, those who are blessed with wealth. That they would not be high-minded. Right? Just because God has chosen you in the grand scheme of things to be somebody that he blesses with wealth, doesn't make you any better or, or this person who he is not blessed in that way any less. Right? We understand that in the body of Christ, it takes all of them. That each one of us is fitly joined together in our position in the body of Christ, such that some may be wealthy and some may not be. But the wealthy arm cannot say to the unwealthy foot, we don't need you. So they don't become high-minded. They're not thinking down about others. Nor, and probably as important, nor do they trust in their uncertain riches. An example of somebody who had riches, who was doing a good job stewarding them well, is Job. So much so that God would say to Satan, listen, have you seen my servant Job? This guy who was wealthy, he was rich, he was blessed, and he stewarded it well. God would say, way to go, Job. But his wealth is, was uncertain. That in God's sovereignty and his plan and purpose, for whatever reasons that he chose to do it, here it is. He removes everything from Job. And we see the heart of Job. We find out where his trust was as you study through that book. It was never in those riches. It was always and remained firmly in the Lord. Yet, yet though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is what he said. And he comes to the end and he walks away blessed even above and beyond what he had before. Not that that was the point, but that was the reward that God gave, as it were. His faith was firmly in the Lord. He was not trusting in the uncertain riches he had received, but he trusted in God. Not only that, but in verse 18 it says, they do good, uh, charge them that, that, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Here he begins to describe the responsibilities of those who have been entrusted with wealth. This is how you steward it for my glory. I want to go back to Hosea chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 for just a moment. And I want to, I want to look at a few things here. Notice that he says, yet... Yet have I, in verse 8, yet have I become rich. In other words, there's this discussion here about, I, th there's an admission, as it were. They know that what they're doing is wrong, yet I am getting away with it. It calls to question the veracity of the Word of God. Right? That, that, this kind of attitude calls into question the veracity of the Word of God. If God said that this is wrong, yet I can get away with it, and I can be quote-unquote blessed in the middle of it, then God must have been wrong over here. And if, we're, if, if we understand Scripture, we realize that that is a very myopic, it's looking at one single thing, one myopic view of Scripture. Because in no way, shape, or form are you getting away with anything. Remember in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, it says, Listen, everything is laid naked and bare with him that we have to do. 
We're not getting away with anything. God knows exactly what we're doing. And not only that, remember Galatians chapter 6. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We may not reap it in this life, but we did not get away with anything. And probably more often than not, we are going to reap something in this life. There is consequence for that sin. Israel's not getting away with it. They are about to go into captivity. They are losing, they have lost favor with God, for lack of better terms, and they're about to suffer the consequence. They know that what they're doing is wrong, and they choose to ignore it. They're like those that we read about in Romans 1.18 that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I'm getting away with it, so I'm going to ignore it. In addition, he says, I have found me out substance. I have found it out. The blessing that they perceive or that they claim that they're receiving is ascribed to themselves. And if that's the case, then who, in fact, is the God that you're worshiping? It's obviously not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're your own God. You fashioned a God into your own image. You are the God that you pretend to worship in these idols. I have got this substance. I have got these things. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you'll remember that not only are we told to teach our children, but there's a purpose and a reason why we teach our children. He says, listen, when you come into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses uh, 6, excuse me, verses 10 through 13. When you come into the land and you live in houses that you didn't build and you harvest crops you didn't plant, when you reap all the wealth without it having invested any of the effort into it, God says, you be careful that you don't forget me who gave it to you, who provided it for you. The Bible says that even the strength that we have to go to work and do the job that we have to do is given to us by God so that we might fulfill the commands of Scripture to provide for our family. We're, don't be deceived. We are not doing anything. God is operating in us and through us. He's providing for our needs. He is, in fact, faithful. Not only that, but there is a justification. There, in all of my labors, in everything that I do, they shall find none iniquity in me. There is no sin. There's a justification of sin. The end for Israel, the end, what they could get out of it would justify the means, however they got it. It reminds me of a verse in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. It reminds me of the verse, though I can't tell you exactly what the verse says, but I can read it to you. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? We understand that even though we might be in Christ, we might be born again, we are saved from the eternal consequences of our sin. We have reaped eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. But there is still consequence. That, that, that we still fail, that we still indulge at times, that we still succumb to the lusts of the flesh. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
Now, positionally in Christ, we are righteous. We are justified. We are declared by God himself to be righteous, and that's an unchanging fact. But we're going to struggle with sin in this life and the effects of it. He that says he has no sin deceives himself, and the truth isn't in him. And here's Israel. There's no sin in us. Everything that we're doing is above board. Verse 2, Hosea chapter 2, The Lord has also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. Now, you'll notice there that there's a controversy with Judah. This isn't the first time that the southern kingdom has been called into question. It's not the first time that God has called out Judah in the book of Hosea. Listen, Judah, you're doing better than than Israel, but you still got some things you need to shore up. But he uses that as a transition. I want to talk, though, for just a moment about this recompense, this payment, as it were, what we earn through the way that we live. Being re rewarded, recompensed, paid for the way that we conduct ourselves. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2 for just a moment. Romans 2. Verses 6 through 7. Now, as we get into this, let me just preface everything to say that, listen, and, I, and I've already said it, but we are in Jesus Christ. We are given eternal life. So when he believed on him, to them gave he the power, the power to become the sons of God. Romans 8, 1. For, in, for us who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. We understand that for us, there is no condemnation for those for, eternally for the sin that we have rendered. Okay, so what we're not talking about is salvation here. What we are talking about is the consequence of sin, the effects of sin in our life, and God ultimately redeeming it so that we might learn from the mistakes that we've made, which is exactly what he's trying to do here with Israel. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 this is speaking about God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to them who are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Now here there is some, some inference to our eternal state, right? That we who, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we continue in well-doing. We seek for honor and glory, but ultimately that immortality, that eternal life that we've received, that's, that's a one and done. But God will render to every man according to his deeds. Galatians 6, 7, we already referenced it, that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. Here is Israel about to reap destruction because they sow to their flesh. But if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap life everlasting. And for you and I as believers, it isn't just that life everlasting. We've already reaped that in Jesus Christ. It's the eternal reward that comes in that everlasting life. Jesus would talk about this in Matthew chapter 16. If you'll turn there with me. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father 
with his angels, and, with, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That Jesus Christ, when he, as he appears, the second, when Jesus returns, he's coming with reward either way. A recompense is coming. You're going to get paid what you deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his Son. Now, to build upon this idea that here is this reward that comes, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, I want to begin in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right? That is the foundation. There may be those who try to build with something else, but that's not going to stand. It's like the man that builds his house on the sand, as opposed to the man who digs down and builds his life on the rock of Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, Right? We've got different building materials. All this illustrating something. Every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to be revealed. It's clearly laid out in front of us how we build and what we build with. For the day shall declare it. When Jesus comes, and this is looking at the end, right? When Jesus comes with that reward in his hand, the day will declare it because you're going to receive, and it, will, it says it will be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide, he which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet at, so as by fire. Now, in that last verse, I'm convinced that this is addressed specifically to believers, and that the security of believers is sure and firm. But we as believers can build in two ways. We can build with things that will last for eternity and we'll go through that trying of fire. It's proved and yeah, this is good. You'll receive reward for it. Or we can build with junk that burns up in the fire and it's, there's loss. There is no reward for it. For you and I as believers, we get to choose day in and day out how we're going to live our life, how we build upon that foundation. Am I going to serve the Lord? Am I going to walk in obedience to the truth that he has revealed in his word? Or am I going to walk in my own way? Do I set my own standard? Do I proceed like Israel? Or do I proceed as a disciple of Jesus Christ? There's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is destruction. Now, I realize that that particular reference there is in, in reference to our eternal state. That's Jesus talking about pursuit of the things in this life as opposed to pursuit of Him in regard to our salvation. However, by way of application, for you and I as believers, there may be a way that seems right to us. This isn't that bad, or other people are getting away with it, whatever it may be. However, we might justify that. For you and I, it behooves us. In fact, we're obligated to do it, to study, to show ourselves approved. A workman that needs not be ashamed because we rightly divide the word. I understand that this is wrong because God has said it is wrong, and I know it's wrong because I read it in the word, and that's how I'm going to operate. 
And I'm not going to justify sin in my life. I'm not going to allow it. As we talked about in the past through the book of Hosea, we're going to cut it off and not allow it to abide. This is Israel. They feel like they're getting away with it. They're not getting away with it. And neither will we. There is a way that seems right, but we need to find the right way. Now, <clears throat> jump with me to verse 9 in Hosea chapter two, uh, 12. It says, And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. So here is God addressing the heart behind this, their, their choice to walk contrary to him. He's like, listen, you find this wealth, you feel like you've gotten your hands all, all, all wrapped around it, and it's yours to keep. But let me tell you this, he says, I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, right? I'm the one that delivered you out of it. You have heard about your entire lives. You've been raised with the knowledge of how I delivered you, how I led you in the wilderness, how I provided for you, how I did everything necessary for you as my people. That's the God that I am, he says. And there's more to build upon that, and we'll talk about it here in a moment. He says, yet will I make thee to dwell in tabernacles. Does anybody know what a tabernacle is? Say it loudly. What is a tabernacle? It's a tent, right? You got a big house. You got fancy stuff. You're wealthy and rich, but I, the living God, I'm going to make you to live in a tent. They're trusting in their uncertain riches. And God says, listen, that's, he's going to remove it from them. We talked about this in Hosea chapter 2. Let me turn there. Hosea 2, verses 6 through 9. God says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up the way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. This is back when he's talking about Israel and using that illustration of this adulterous woman. Verse 7, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she but shall not find them. Then shall she say, wow, that's a lot of S's. It's like a tongue to, all right, bear with me. I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better than with me than now. Right? There's this pursuit and this running after all of these things, but this is, the, this is where they end up. Verse 8, for she did not know. Israel was unwilling to acknowledge and did not know that I am the one that gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Right? These are all the things that I've provided for you, and those are the very offerings that you're taking to your idols. Therefore, God says in verse 9, I will return and take away my corn from the time thereof and my, new, and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. God says all those things that have been blessing and provision for you, I'm going to remove. All those quote-unquote wealth and those things that you hold dear to, you're going to remove from you, just like he's doing here. They thought they were rich. God would make them to live in tents. Their ill-gotten gains were going to be removed from them. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, 
Let's read verses 34 through 38. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, this is obviously Jesus being referred to, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall give shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall have it. For what profit, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In other words, let me just sum that up for you. You believers, what purpose is there in, what good, what, what value do you put on your soul? Would you exchange all of that for the wealth that we might receive in this life? And we've already established we're not talking about loss of salvation for you and I as believers, but but we're willing to trade our witness. We're willing to trade our interaction with the world around us for a positive light. We're willing to trade the truth and the veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for what I might get out of it. That's where Israel's at. That's where they're. That's exactly what they're doing. They look just like the world. That's why God calls them Canaan. He continues on. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sin sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right? We just talked about the, the reward or the loss by the way we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Here we are, we might have stacked up all kinds of blocks on that foundation, all kinds of things, but they burn up. There is shame associated with that. We didn't get away with anything. Paul would say in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for there's a power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why would we be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Or why would we exchange or deprive anyone the full understanding of what the gospel of Christ is for whatever benefit we might reap? Keeping that extra set of weights under the table and I can bring those out when nobody's looking and now I can start, right? Or putting sawdust in my transmission so it sounds nice and quiet. I don't know, is that a thing? It sounds like a terrible idea, but it probably is a thing, right? It sounds nice and quiet. Whatever it might be, you're not getting away with it. I'm not getting away with it. But in the end, right, we name the name of Christ and our witness is broken. And not only that, we've damaged the veracity. Here's the thing. I'll give you an example. Years ago, we were going to have a ministry come in. Um, I can't even remember the name of the ministry. They did sort of drama things, and it was super solid, really good stuff. And at the same time that they were supposed to come here, they had an opportunity to go into a country in Africa, and I apologize, I don't remember which one it was. And so they called, and they were very apologetic, and they went, and, and I was like, hey, sounds like a great opportunity, we'll be praying for you. They went and did the thing, and they, and they said, this is the prayer that we need, because in Africa, we can get a 10,000 people together at the drop of a hat. We can fill stadiums. It is not a problem to get people together. This is the problem that we're going to encounter and we're getting this from the people who were there, is that they've already tried Jesus. We filled the stadium. We took your money. We promised you all kinds of things. I tried Jesus, and nothing happened. Right? Charlatans. 
So, so what's happened is that the gospel, the, the veracity of the gospel has been damaged. And we have to overcome that. The way that we conduct ourselves, we talked about this in Sunday schools. We talked about these spheres of influence. If you guys remember that, right? We had these spheres of influence and these things that we purpose that we're going to begin to engage in and do better in. Why? Because we know that there are places where we need to shore it up. We've done a poor job, whether it's in regard to family or neighbors or coworkers, whatever it may be. As part of our shoring up of that particular sphere of influence that we purpose to shore up, we may have to repent. Not only that, we may have to confess to those people that we have failed with to help shore up the veracity of the gospel. Not that it needs shoring up, but you understand my point. Right? We talk about it all the time, that the way that we as a church deal with hypocrisy is to own hypocrisy and to seek forgiveness. When we call sin, sin, even when it's us committing it, that's a witness to the world that we would submit ourselves to the humiliation, so to speak, of acknowledging sin and seeking their forgiveness and making restitution if necessary. God is going to pay Israel in full for the sin that they're living in. We may reap what we sow in regard to the sin that we might harbor. And I'll just say that sometimes the sin that we may harbor may be that withdrawal, that a shame related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should never be named of us. Now, he makes this comparison to Jacob. And I know I talked about that. I teased it at the beginning, and here it is. He makes this comparison to Jacob. Now, uh, let's read it, verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, because he's just referenced Jacob in verse 2, Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto them. He, he found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Now, let's look at Jacob, right? The first place we begin to read about Jacob is in Genesis chapter 25. Okay, who, who was Jacob's parents? And I'll settle for just the dad's name if you want to just throw that one out there. Who was Jacob's dad? Isaac. Okay, we, we have a correct answer in the back. It was... Micaiah was pretty sure that there was some iffy, <laughs> but it is Isaac, in fact, yes. Right? So we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is, this is the lineage. This is where it's coming from. We understand Jacob. Now, jump with me to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, uh, God talks about Jacob. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. And not only this... But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, right? So now we know who we're talking about. We've already established that. For the children not being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. Now there's a lot to unpack in that verse. There's a lot to unpack in that verse. I'm going to sum it up in this for the sake of discussion this morning because it doesn't uh, come to bear in heavily upon the discussion. That God is sovereign. And that God knows things, He foreknows things that we may not ever be able to foreknow. 
But here it is. Even if God chose not to know, he is sovereign. He gets to choose who he chooses and all those things. Now, in choosing, he doesn't remove from us the agency that he's given us. Right? There's a balance to be struck in that statement alone. So it's outside of the scope of what we're talking about this morning, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I know it's an oversimplification, but there it is. Okay. The point in all of that is that neither one of these, Jacob nor Esau, who are the, these kids that are being talked about, have done anything that would merit them favor with God or not merit them favor with God. They're not even born yet. Which is every one of us, it's a true statement of every one of us. At the Before we're bored, right? There it is. Okay, now, uh, verse 12, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And when you're, if you remember, when we studied through the word hated there, it doesn't mean that God hated Esau. It means that he loved him less. That's literally what it means, loved less. I don't think that God hated Esau. But he had chosen Jacob to be the special object of his care and concern. Right? He was going to be the lineage that furthered all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob. Okay, so all of that's happening here. There's a lot, there's a lot unpacking there. Okay. He references this power, this power that Jacob had with God. Now, the long and the short is this: that the power that Jacob had with God was related to the sovereignty of God. He had sway on the Lord because God had chosen him. Right, if I can just phrase it that way. God loved Jacob, so therefore he was concerned about Jacob. He was concerned about the things that they were happening to Jacob. He'd made promises that needed to be furthered through that lineage, and so therefore he was going to preserve Jacob, and that's what we find happening throughout Jacob's life. I'll tell you that Jacob, for a lot of his life, was a little sleazy. He was not a particularly great guy. He wasn't the forefather that we point to and say, yeah, let's be like Jacob for a lot of his life. But here is God engaged in it because God had chosen him. God had made promises. God was furthering things through Jacob. The sway that he had with the Lord was related to God's sovereignty and to the choice that God had already made. But ultimately, Jacob, through his life and through the faithfulness of God, learned to trust God. As God was providential in his life, as God would preserve him, as God would watch out and protect and, and care for him and, and, and give him special attention, if I can use those terms, he learned to trust him. Let's look at a couple of examples in Genesis 28 first. Genesis 28, verse 10. These are a little long, but stick with me. <clears throat> Genesis 28, verse 10, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went unto Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set, and took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in the place to sleep. All right, so here it is. Jacob falls asleep in this place, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder uh, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. All right, this is Jacob's ladder. We, we understand what's happening here. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of Abraham, my father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, 
To thee will I give it and to thy seed. I mean, God is doubling down. He's reiterating the promise that he's made to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob now. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread upon the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's not the first time we've heard that promise. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of. Listen, God says, Jacob, I'm going to take special care of you in honor of the promises that I've made to Abraham, Isaac, and now to you. That this lineage, you being part of that lineage, is the lineage that I've chosen to bless all nations with. That I'm going to multiply you. And I'm going to give you this land. All of those things are going to be there. And so therefore, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to bring you back to this land that I promised. Now, Jacob's response, he wakes up. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's, <clears throat> he says, surely the Lord was in this place in verse 16. And I knew it not. Was unrecognizing of that. And he was afraid. And he rose up early in the morning in verse 18. And he took the stone that he had put in his pillows and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Does anybody remember hearing about Bethel as we studied through the book of Hosea? Yeah. What's in Bethel right now? One of the golden calves that they fashioned, right? The Jeroboam put up. It's in Bethel. And what does God call Bethel? He doesn't call it Bethel anymore. That means house of God. Anybody remember what he calls it? Because off the top of my head right now, I cannot. It was, what, two weeks ago? Beth Arba? Something like that? I mean, like, I apologize. Shouldn't have gone there. But he doesn't call it Bethel any longer. He says, this is somewhere that you have established idolatry and is no longer my house. Okay, so this is Bethel, and that's where Jacob called it. Um, but the name of the city was first called Luz. And Jacob, in verse 20, vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And, I, and I'm, maybe I'm going to pick a fine bone here, but here is Jacob. He makes a vow, and he says, I'm going to put a condition upon God. If God proves himself to be faithful, then I'll be faithful to him. If he'll do the thing that he said he would do, and he'll bring me back here to my father's house in peace, then he will be my God. He's, he's not committing to serve God at this point in his life. But he vows this vow, and he's serious about the vow that he made, and he even erects this, this altar, so to speak, as a commemoration of the vow that he made. But going forward, he, he says, I'm not going to commit to serve the Lord until he proves himself to me. Turn with me to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, verses 1 through 13. So Jacob's made it in there. He's, let's see, at this point, is he served for Rachel and Leah? He has. And he's, he's thinking about leaving. Ultimately, it's the long and short of this. And when he heard the words of Laban's son, verse 1, saying, Jacob has taken away all that our father, uh, all that was our father's, and that which was our father's, has he gotten all this glory? And behold, Jacob 
and Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. So here's what's happened, right? Rachel and Leah have been served for. He's now got two wives. He's been beginning to have children. I'm going to leave. And he gets talked into staying for just a period of time. And what happens? He says, listen, Laban, I've been serving you. You should pay me. What I want you to do is give me all the, all the spotted and the ring straked, all the, the bad looking of your flock. Just give me the bad stuff. And that's what he does. He, he just takes the bad stuff and that's what he reaps. And ultimately what happens is that God honors Jacob because that's what he promised to do. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to take you. Despite whether you're for me or against me, I'm watching out for you. And he's been blessed, and Laban's sons are noticing this. Listen, everything. Our father used to be pretty wealthy. Now here's Jacob. He's got all of his stuff. I mean, Laban's got plenty, but what's happened is that all of his flocks have begun to bear offspring that are spotted and ring-strength. I mean, his flocks are shrinking, and Jacob's are expanding. And Laban's not happy about it. Jacob's noticed, my father-in-law. It's not as friendly as he used to be. Jump with me toward the end here. <clears throat> Verse 7. And your father has deceived me. Here he is having this conversation with his, uh, with his wives, yes. And your father has deceived me and charged, changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckle shall be the wages, and all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus, the ring strake shall be thy hire, then bear all the cattle ring strake. Thus God has taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. He's like, listen, this is not anything that I'm doing. Laban keeps changing the deal. God keeps being faithful to me. And the angel of the Lord in verse 11 spake unto me a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up thine eyes now, and see all the rams which leap on the cattle are ring shrake, speckled, and grizzled, for I have seen all that Laban does unto thee. I am the God of Bethel, that thou anointest the pillar, where thou anointest the pillar, where thou vowest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out of this land, and return to the land of thy kindred. It's like, listen, you remember that time in Bethel, Jacob? where you put up all those stones and you poured the oil on them and you vowed that you would serve me if I would bring you back into your father's land. Listen, I kept my end of the deal. I was faithful to you the entire time. And you're even acknowledging that even despite Laban and his changing your wages 10 times, I have proved myself faithful. And now it's time to go back to your father's land. It's time to go. And that's exactly what happens. We have the whole account where Rachel takes her father's gods and puts the little idols, and that ends up being a problem. Genesis 32, uh, verse 24 and 30. Jacob's left. He's getting nearer and nearer back to uh, the promised land. He's fearful of Esau. You'll remember that back in the day, not only did he deceive his father, pretended to be Esau to get the blessing, but he bought his birthright. 
I mean, it was agreed upon, but Esau was not particularly happy about it. He's like, listen, twice Jacob has taken advantage of me. One, when he took my birthright, and two, when he pretended to be me and got the blessing. They didn't leave on good terms, and Jacob's fearful of his brother Esau. And so he's sending all these offerings ahead of him, uh, trying to make peace with him. He ends up sending his family, and he stays back here in verse 24. And Jacob is left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and this guy shows up and is like, let's wrestle. Probably didn't go down quite that way, but right, the, the circumstance surrounding this is somewhat odd at the beginning. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, and he touched, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. I mean, Jacob's holding on for dear life, wrestling this man, uh, and, and the man's not prevailing, and so he touches the hollow of his thigh, and he said, let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go except you bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall no more be called Jacob. Right? Your name's not going to be called Jacob anymore. Your name will be Israel. But for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. As a prince, you have power with God and you prevail. God changes his name. Now we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and ultimately Israel. Jacob and Israel are the same person. Just remember that. So all of this looking forward to all of this faithfulness and what happens, what is the response? Well, we find Jacob turning his heart toward the Lord. He honors the vow, as it were, but he doesn't just honor the vow. He honors the God who was faithful to him through all of it. We have this person who is conceived, has no, no merit or favor with God, yet God in, in his sovereignty chooses him. Ultimately, we find that he has promised to watch out and protect him, to provide through all of that lineage, so on and so forth. And we see God honor every promise that he has made. And don't miss the parallel, because in some, this is looking at you and I. This is looking at, at Israel. Here it is. Jacob, not the, not the ideal patriarch, not the guy that we point to and say, hey, be like him. Yet God was faithful. And in the end, he gets the point and he turns his heart from the sin that he had, from his unwillingness, from his own pursuits, and he turns his heart back toward or toward God, period. And God is making this comparison with Israel. He says, listen, be like Jacob, be like that he who would turn his heart back to me as I had proven myself faithful over and over again. Because over and over again, I have taken care of you. I'm the God that led you out of Egypt. I'm the God that provided for you in the wilderness. I'm the God that has protected you. I remember all those judges that I would provide and we delivered you over and over again as a result, out of the, the, the bondage that you found yourself in and as a result of your sin. The God was faithful over and over again and yet here his people are rejecting him continuing in the idolatry that they found themselves in. And for you and I, there is some truth in this personally. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That God willing to show his love to you and I, not meriting any favor, not worthy of any exercise of his love for us, would send Jesus Christ that we would die on, that he would die on our behalf. That he would be faithful even in the midst of our sinfulness. 
In Hosea 12, verse 5, he says, Even the Lord God of hosts, the God, the, the Lord is his memorial. God's talking about speaking with him there, and, and ultimately, it, we find that God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This guy who, who wasn't ideal, who, who wasn't a sterling example, yet here he is, and he stands as a picture today of God's faithfulness and of his mercy and his love towards us. And that God would reflect that in his very name. Now, there's more to this than just that, that he became the God of Jacob. We're reminded in the name here, you'll notice, even the Lord, Yahweh, this is the name that the I am that God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I am. As I said, Jacob's favor with God, his power, his, his, over, his power with God, as it's called here, was rooted in the sovereignty of God. It was rooted in who God was. And the same is true for you and I, and it is rooted in who God is. I am that I am. The unchanging creator, the one who is self-existent, that is not that doesn't need anything from you or I, is self-sufficient, is perfectly just, is perfectly merciful, all of the things, all at the same time, would keep his promise to you and I to provide a, a savior just as he has been faithful to the nation of Israel. In Numbers chapter 23, turn there with me for a moment. Numbers chapter 23. Verse 19. Now in the middle of all of this, this is where Balak and Balaam, remember Balaam was a guy who could curse people or bless people. And Balak, this king, hires him to come and curse Israel, God's people. And God eventually lets Balaam go. Balaam wants to go because his pockets are going to be lined. And God allows it. And he says, but you're only going to be able to bless my people. And this is what he says in verse 19. There's this interaction. And he says, now therefore I pray you tarry ye also here this night that I may know Chapter 23, not 22. Sorry. It's still the same context, by the way. Still the same context, all right? God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God had told Israel, listen, I'm going to prosper. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. He didn't lie when he told them that. He's delivering on that promise, just as, he, as we would expect. Not only that, but he made promises to all of mankind. Ultimately, we find that those promises lead into and are rooted in the fact that God made a promise to mankind at the fall that we would be delivered from the consequences of sin. The Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of Scripture is God's purpose and method of fulfilling that very promise. God is not a man that he should lie or, or that he would repent and change his mind in there that, oh, I got this wrong, and so now I've got to go back. 
Now, he's going to be ultimately, he's going to be faithful because that is who he is. It is his nature. And he's going to bring to pass through Jacob, even somebody who is less than ideal, through many other who are less than ideal, so that his plan and purpose to fulfill his promises and not deny his nature will be accomplished. Psalm 90, verse 2 says basically the same thing, that God doesn't lie. Hebrews 13, 8 makes the equation between Jesus and God and says, listen, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's unchanging. He doesn't love you today and then not love you tomorrow because you somehow made some mistake. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. That's not the way that it works. In Malachi chapter 3, just turn there with me, Malachi 3, verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God had every right to have dealt with Israel by wiping them off the mat. He could have. They had sinned. The wages of sin is death. He's made that abundantly clear all the way back from the Old Testament. This is what happens. When we commit sin, we die. He was fully justified in doing that. However, God in all of his nature and all of his character, all of his attributes, as we've talked about last week and the week before, being fully at play in this entire scenario in his dealings with Israel. He isn't just justice at this moment and then mercy at this moment. He's justice and mercy altogether. I am the Lord, I change not. He's made promises to Abraham, to Isaac. He's reiterated those very promises to Jacob. He's proven himself faithful over and over. He is trustworthy. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He preserves his people so that his promises may be fulfilled, so that he may have his will and plans and purposes established for mankind. Therefore, he says in verse 6, Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. The very God who doesn't change, who is always faithful, who exhibits love and mercy to his people, who is at the same time completely just, all of his attributes being always at play. The God who does not change calls his people back. While he may not need anything from you, he is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need anything from me either. He chooses to operate in relationship with us. He chooses to operate in relationship with Israel. He said, listen, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He enjoyed relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that was lost as a consequence of sin. And he spends the rest of history up to the point of Jesus Christ and ultimately through Jesus Christ, even to today, redeeming mankind, bringing them back into relationship with himself. 
here he is in the book of Hosea, even though judgment is coming, it is eminent, calling them to repentance, calling them back to himself. He says, turn now to thy God. To repent, to turn back from the things that they're engaged in and their hearts back to him. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We have Peter here speaking at Pentecost. And the ultimately the the interaction that Peter has with these people, we read about in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter to the to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What is the right response to the truth that we've just heard? We are convicted of its authenticity and its veracity and the, the need to respond to it in some way. And Peter responds, he says, to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He tells them to repent. He tells them to turn from where they're at and turn to the true and living God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He tells them to walk in, in response to the truth that they've had. Now jump with me to Acts chapter 26, because as we look at this, there's an application, there's a twofold application, as it were. There is our application of this truth in a respect to our relationship and entering into that relationship, into our salvation. Now, what I don't want to be understood as saying is that repentance is somehow a work unto salvation because that's not correct. What Peter was calling them from is their false worship or their rejection of their God. Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. And now turn to faith in Jesus Christ, receiving him that God has sent. It's a description of faith and turning from misplaced faith to appropriately placed faith. In Acts chapter 26, there's an application for you and I as believers, those who have exercised faith. We've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ and by that alone. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 19. Here is Paul, and he's speaking before King Agrippa. And whereupon, O King Agrippa, he says, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem. This is Paul describing his ministry. And throughout all the coast of Judea, and then unto the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Right. So there's this statement about faith, but not only that, and do works meet for repentance. In other words, we're going to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with those things that will abide, those gold, silver, and precious stones, by the acts that we're committing. We're going to do so in such a way that our profession of faith in Jesus Christ is consistent with and reaffirmed by the witness of our life. We're going to do works that are consistent with our profession of faith. So he tells them to turn. He tells them to repent. Secondly, he says to them, keep mercy and judgment. Now, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, 
Hosea 4, 1. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. He tells them to keep mercy, to keep mercy and judgment. And ultimately, for you and I, we understand that there is a calling to do so consistently with how God has instructed us by his word. In other words, keep order your life by the word of God. Israel is suffering as a result of their rejection. There's controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there's no mercy, there's no truth, there's no knowledge of God. They've put all those things aside. At the very best, they're probably suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, puts it in some simple terms for us to some degree. Uh, there's probably more to unpack than we're going to unpack this morning, but Micah 6, 8, uh, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, to not oversimplify, but to, but to look at it just plainly, what does the Lord require? To do justly. Who defines justice? God himself does. If we're going to walk in justice, if we're going to exercise and do things justly, then we're going to have to know the word of God. It is his character, it is his nature, it is part of who he is. We're going to love mercy. How do we know what is merciful if we don't know what the word of God says? As God has revealed what mercy is in his word. And walk humbly with our God. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. In other words, let the word of God come in and let it have its way in us. Let it be that which instructs us, that which informs us how we ought to operate. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and to the Father by him. But we're going to orchestrate, we're going to operate our lives in such that it is consistent with the word of God. Last, God tells the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, to wait. And when we talk about wait, it infers and it demands of us trust. Right? We're going to wait. Turn with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. In Hebrews chapter, and there's several other Psalms here you can write down. There's dozens and dozens of places we could go look. Psalm 37, 7, Psalm 130, verses 5 through 7. But I want to look at the description that God gives, his definition, as it were, of what 
we would describe or we would equate trust and faith to be the same. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that are not seen. This trust is the substance, it is the assurance, the absolute grounding in the fact, as it were. If God has said it, then it's as good as done. Even if it hasn't come to fruition, perhaps, it's as good as done. He will do it. There's this firm and this right expectation, and it's the evidence, there's the proof of things that are not seen. And it goes on throughout that book of uh, of Hebrews in chapter 11 to describe those who operated by faith, who trusted in the Lord, who would wait and see all of those things, some of them not seeing them in this life. Abraham looking forward to, and by faith, looking forward to this city that had not yet come, and its description being there, but here he is held up as an example of faith. Why? Because he trusted in the Lord and was willing to wait on the promise. That wait demands of you and I trust. And that trust comes with some expectation. Expectation for something that is good. One verse as we close this morning. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you read through the rest of this chapter in Hosea chapter 12, God describes his interaction with his people by the prophets. And he talks about that over and over again. That he comes to the prophets over and over again and that they, that they wouldn't listen to them. Uh, that he had led them as he had from Egypt. And you can reference Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is there being stoned. And he's giving this masterful outline of the history of, of Israel in light of God's faithfulness. He led them from Egypt. He, he watched over them. He protected them. He stewarded his people, as it were. And today we understand that God speaks by his word. In Hebrews 11, 1, God used to speak by his prophets. Now he speaks to us by his son, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, the word was with God and the word was God. Or we have this description of Jesus taking on flesh in John chapter 1. And, and today, how does God speak to us? Well, he speaks to us largely by his word. And he sets us free by that very truth. The truth will set you free. And not only that, but the truth sets us apart to do the things that God called us to do. Jesus said in his prayer there in Gethsemane in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. So for you and I today, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there's an expectation there. There's some hope to be sowed in our hearts and minds. And I'm as we look at this, that hope and that looking forward to that expectation gives us some ability, for lack of better terms. He says, gird up your loins. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, we would read about it this way, that we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And, and, we, and we, we look unto him, lest we be wearied, right? Because things aren't all going well. We suffer and we, we find the effects of sin not only in us, 
and through us, but all around us. Sometimes it's discouraging. He says, look unto him unless you, and so you do your hands don't hang low and your knees are feeble and all these things, right? And this is, it's a physical description of this. Woe is me. I can't do it anymore. Physical presentation. And in the same way, we have this hope that, that here it is. We look to Jesus and we gird up our loins. Right? You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I realize that's sort of an unreverent illustration in this respect. Because it isn't you or I that is doing this. This is by the grace of God that we're able to do this. And this is something that he is bringing about in us by his spirit. But he continues on. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That you and I as believers, as hard as it may be, as, as frequently as we may fail, that there is a purposing and a pushing forward with, pushing forward in, as it says here, fashioning ourselves as those who are easily recognizable as disciples of Jesus Christ. Not fashioning ourselves in a way that we look just like the world, like Israel has done, where God would call them out and call them Canaan because you look just like the Canaanites that were here before you. You're doing the same things and you're justifying that and you're not acknowledging the sin that's in your life. He says, no, fashion yourselves as somebody who is recognizable as a disciple of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, be ye holy, he says, because I am holy. And be holy in all manner of conversation. That isn't just the things that we say. That simply means in the way that we conduct ourselves, how we live. So the choice before you and I is how we build. Because it is written, he says, be ye holy for I am holy. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we take this message of hope and redemption and salvation from the consequence of sin to the world that's around us. And we represent the Lord and who he is in that message. Be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that your word clarifies and cuts through those things that, that we may, that I may not present as well as could be presented. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, for grace for everyone here, that we might take what your word says, that we might understand it, as your spirit, as we prayed earlier, for your spirit to lead us in truth, Lord, help uh, help those things that were not as well presented as perhaps they could have been. And Lord, give us hearts and softness of heart that we might receive the truth of your word, no matter how it confronts us, no matter where it affects us, no matter what we may, but Lord, let the truth reign in our lives. Let it dwell in us richly. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we have opportunity uh, in the next few moments, just to praise you, to sing uh, thanksgiving for the, all that you've done. Lord, I pray that it would be the offering of our lips. That, Lord, it would be uh, the worshipful response to the interaction that we've had with your word. We praise you and we thank you now. And we commit this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.